Hey, and welcome back to Dorm Room Histories, the history of China. I only have one quick announcement today. However, it's a quite exciting one, if I do say so myself. We have a website now. Finally. I know I've been hyping it up for the last couple episodes, but now every single The History of China episode is up there with pictures and maps and so much more. I'm super excited about this, so go check it out after this episode is done at dormroomhistory.com. Last week, we saw another dynastic change, as the Zhou overthrew the Shang Dynasty, but this time, things initially did not get off the ground well, and almost didn't get off the ground at all. A succession battle, which again was the worst thing that could have possibly happened for a three-year-old dynasty, broke out, but as we know, Duke of Zhou, who was King Wu's brother, stepped in quickly and acted as the regent ruler for the still, well, still child King Cheng. In short, Duke of Zhou quashed any rebellions and in doing so, conquered tons of new territory. And by the way, you can go to dormroomhistory.com, click on the last episode or this episode, and you'll be able to see a map of the new and enlarged Zhou dynasty. But Duke of Zhou was not quite done yet. He reinterpreted the mandate of heaven to apply to all of the people of the dynasty, not just the ruler. And this, again, was a huge change and one with great consequences. Yes, often for good, but soon, well, equally as often for the bad. Arming everybody with the ideology that if they believe themselves to be suffering in any way, then the ruler must go. So you, you can see where good could come from that. And yeah, now the ruler had to maintain health and prosperity for all of his people and not just himself. But that same mindset can be and will be weaponized. Sure, they will never be a warring states era where states vie for power and their claim to the mandate of heaven for hundreds of years. Oh, that does happen. Regardless, this week we are still in the mid-years of the Western Zhou dynasty. Duke of Zhou, against all odds and all precedent of rulers for all of history, stepped down. King Cheng took the reins and then his son and then his grandson did as well. And the last two ruled over a relatively peaceful and conflict-free realm. But things were about to change. So, without further ado, The History of China, Episode 7, Zhou Troubles. The Zhou, by the time of their fourth king, were at pretty much a zenith point. From what is gathered, the rule of Cheng and his son, and then right up until his grandson, were all just methodically good. But anyone who knows sports knows that, well, no matter how good your team is, eventually something's going to knock you down a peg because, well, you can't win every game forever. Albeit, maybe not if you're a Harlem Globetrotters fan. But by the time King Zhao assumed the role of king, King Kong, who was his father, and King Cheng, who was his grandfather, had slowly pushed out and pacified a number of regions, mainly in the central plains of China. All the tribes, one by one, fell to the Zhou dynasty's sword. And by the end there, it was really only the pesky and long-running character in this story of the Dongyi tribes of eastern Shandong that were keeping up the good fight. But look... By the time King Kong was done with the other Central Plains groups, the Dongyi were by themselves, and they were really no longer an actual threat to the Zhou Dynasty's rule. 
Thus, after King Kong died, King Zhao inherited, look, put simply, a prospering kingdom. His first project was not a new conquest or anything. No, because, well, times were good, and he instead made a temple to honor his father. With the eastern and northeastern regions of the new Zhou dynasty, and yes, all pretty much pacified except for a few pissed-off Dongyi tribes, King Zhao slowly turned the Zhou military machine around and began to point it west. The Yellow River Basin is a region that is chock-full of raw materials, which, by the way, is now becoming a hot commodity as the Zhou dynasty were continuously expanding upon their early metalworks. So, well, raw materials are becoming more and more important. But, well, this region is not controlled by the Zhou, and it never had been, and even worse, it's not even controlled by a random group of easily beatable tribes. Because, come on now, it's about time the Zhou encountered an actual enemy. Or, wait, an allied state? Well, because the Yellow River Basin was under control of an allied and friendly organization slash state, well, depends on how you want to look at it, known as the Confederation of Chu. That is, Chu, C-H-U. Since the start of the Zhou Dynasty some 200 years before, the Chu Confederation had been super friendly. They'd always been an allied state, but, well, times were a-changing. Under King Zhao, the relationship between the Zhou and the Chu completely fell apart in about a second. The now metal-heavy Zhou were continuously demanding more and more raw materials like gold, copper, you know, the works. And according to the Zhou, the issue was not because of that, and was instead because, well, the Chu were getting a little too big for their boots, and the Chu began to expand a bit too much and a bit too aggressively. So some border skirmishes began to break out, but was this a real grand issue where two sides were antagonizing the other, hoping one side would, you know, eventually overreact and then give an open excuse for, well, open war? Well, no one knows. But soon enough, eventually, these skirmishes did escalate into, well, open war. And in 961 BC, King Zhao and the Zhou dynasty just, well, straight up invaded the Chu Confederation. The invasion was swift, and they initially conquered the regions north of the Yellow River and soon defeated and subdued all of the 26 states of the Han River Valley, including, yes, the Chu state, as which you can imagine were the headpiece of the Chu Confederation. So while, yes, the Zhou had been expansionistic in the past and had done so in the Chinese Central Plains, they still had no delusions about the practical nightmare that occupying this new, huge, and yes, very hostile region would present. So after winning and after conquering, they just looted the states and then dipped out. But a few years later, the Zhou dynasty wanted some more loot, and King Zhao decided to lead another campaign into the Yellow River Valley. And this time, it was going to be in the middle regions of the Yellow River Valley, not the now looted and barren northern regions. And in 957 BC, he raised one of the most massive armies ever seen in the region. This army saw half of all royal forces being conscripted into it, and this massive force was dubbed the Six Armies of the West. But such a large force begs a question. Were they just going to go and raid, loot, and then leave like they did the last time? 
Or are they actually going to try and occupy this region permanently? Because, well, the only other explanation for having such a large force is to, well, do just that. But interestingly, their reasoning doesn't really matter, because the Joes, six armies of the West, were utterly defeated, routed, and essentially entirely wiped out. And I would love to tell you what happened, but we don't really know. All we know, though, is that King Zhao and the remaining survivors retreated fast, only to get to the Han River and then all drown. Whoa. The winning run had ended for the Zhou dynasty, and it had just ended in very quick tears. Big, dynasty-defining tears, that is. And here's the bigger issue, because not only did the expansion get stopped, which, hey, look, not ideal, but it's not the end of the world. We don't necessarily need new states. But no, the bigger issue was because now the army of the Zhou was crippled. It was utterly destroyed. So, well, other states and tribes realized this and immediately took their chances at invading and grabbing whatever they could before the Zhou dynasty could recoup. And also, immediately following this disastrous campaign, the now disgraced and, yeah, now deceased King Zhao, that is, saw his power fall onto his son, King Mu of Zhou. King Mu was not given a great hand. In fact, it's probably one of the worst hands you could have been given as a new king. He might have dreamed of conquest and glory when his time came, but now he was thrust into the kingship with the sole goal of steadying the ship. And thankfully, and maybe you could have ascertained this from when I said the Zhou were the longest-lasting dynasty, but King Mu was able to restabilize the kingdom. Albeit, there's a caveat, though, because the Yellow River Basin, as you could probably assume, became the permanent southern limit of the Western Zhou's direct control. They were not ever going to try that again. But look, like Duke of Zhou, King Mu was perhaps one of the most pivotal figures of the Zhou dynasty. He reigned for an incredible 55 years, from approximately 976 BC to 922 BC. And like Duke of Zhou, he put in reforms that forever changed not just the Zhou dynasty itself, but China as a whole. So, well, what reforms? Well, his biggest reform transformed the government from a hereditary system to one that was instead based on merit. And as we can see from every empire from here to Greece to Rome to even now, positions earned by merit lead to, well, better results, because it can't hurt to have the best people doing their best work. And while you might think it happened under Zhao before his quick and shocking demise, it's widely believed that the Western Zhou hit their true zenith under King Mu. He was able to stamp out all of the invaders that had seized upon the opportunity of a weaker Zhou dynasty, and he did not stop there. Because, simply put, this dude loved conquests. It was something he'd always wanted to do. He had to fix up the ship, but yes, the moment he got it back up and sailing, he did not hesitate to throw it right back into the fray. He quickly raised and then personally led a huge army against a different peoples known as the Chuan Rong, who inhabited the western part of China. This push west was moderately successful at first, but it also allowed him to contact even more tribes and told them, look, you can either join us 
or yeah, die. So the options were not that great. But this whole sort of invasion to the West, looking back, was really just a passion project with no real logistical plan. So what was he going to do once he conquered them? Even if it was to be considered a success and a victory of some sort, that victory was very clearly a Pyrrhic one. He did not end up bringing that many tribes and regions under the full direct control of the Zhou dynasty. And unintentionally, albeit avoidably, he made a lot of once neutral tribes pretty understandably angry. And these tribes would not forget, and they would be back to get some revenge. But that will be at a later date. But through all of this and his controversial invasion of the West, King Mu did create, according to Han-era historian Sima Qian, the first systematic and cohesive legal code in China. Look, he may have made some mortal enemies that would hate his state long after he died, but hey, with the meritocracy system and this, he did create law and order within. Now, while King Mu probably did not live to his recorded age of 105 or travel to the Chinese version of Mount Olympus, known as Kunlun, and talk to the heavenly bodies, he did eventually die. And while meritocracy was the rule of the land for everybody else, that rule did not apply to the kingship, because obviously, why would it? And he was succeeded soon after by his son, King Gong. And look, unfortunately for us, well, if history here is a radio station, we're about to go under quite the tunnel, and we're only going to be able to pick up bits and pieces for a good bit here, so bear with me. What we do know, though, according to the Grand Historian, King Gong, the son of King Mu, did initiate war at some point. And why did he do it? Well, obviously, women. He had been touring the state of Mi, which was a, spelled M-I, which was a state that was a vassal kingdom of the Zhou dynasty. And while he was there, he saw three extremely beautiful women and commanded the lord of the state to find them and send them to his own palace. But, well, this lord instead took the three extremely beautiful women as his own concubines, which really irritated King Gong. So what did he do? Well, he invaded the entire state and killed that lord. Yikes. But that's really all we know. And after 15 years of his reign, he eventually passed the throne to his son, King Yi, and departed peacefully in his own palace. So essentially, we do know that he did abdicate. But besides that, and besides the fact he may or may not have killed and murdered a lord and invaded a state because he saw beautiful women, but besides that, we really don't know. And for his son, King Yi, besides his solar eclipse and... Well, yeah, just that solar eclipse, the history of King Yi is virtually lost forever. But that doesn't mean there's not another king, because the next was his son, King Li. And King Li is believed to have ruled from around 857 BC to 842 BC. And here you guys go. Did you miss the evil, corrupt, and morally dubious kings? Well, here you go. Because while not much again is known about this king as well, allegedly he was the classic tax everyone to the wall to fund my own vices kind of king. And yes, in the classic despot move, he instated a new law well, that let him kill anybody that spoke against him. But soon the peasants and eventually even his own soldiers revolted. They had had enough of this. 
and they were able to throw him into exile. And so King Li's bad rule was not dynastically ending, but yes, many peasants and soldiers just went into revolt and sent him into exile. But interestingly, this happened in the year 842, and his son was taken by one of the ministers and hidden away. But there were two problems. One being, the boy was too young to rule. And two, King Li was not actually dead, so, well, who actually is the king here? Well, just like we saw after King Wu, a regency rule started. According to the Han Dynasty era historian Sima Qian, this is where the Gonghe Regency began, and it's debated whether it was 841 or 842, but essentially the Zhou Dynasty was jointly ruled by two dukes, and this is going to get confusing because they were, well, the Duke of Zhou, and again, no, obviously this is not to be confused with the first one, though it is believed he may have been this duke's ancestor, and the Duke of Shao. And again, he is also not to be confused with the first and more famous of his namesake. And yeah, he is not the original and well-known Duke of Shao. So regardless of that confusion, there is actually a discrepancy in the history books here. I know. Awesome. We get to maybe doubt everything that happened. Because according to the Bamboo Annals, which was another large historical ancient Chinese account of all the events, the Gonghe Regency was actually not ruled by these two dukes. And instead, according to the Bamboo Annals, it was only led by a single person the Count of Gong, whose, well, real name was He. But for the Eric Andreessen, the History of China timeline, I'm going to stick with Sima Qian here, and the Gonghe Regency starts in 841 and is ruled by the new Duke of Zhou and the new Duke of Shao. While not much is really known about the Gonghe Regency, 841 BC is an extremely significant year in ancient Chinese history, because this was the first year that Sima Qian, who we have, by the way, mentioned virtually every episode, this was the first time he was able to construct a year-by-year chronology back to, well, 841 BC. And him and other historians were, yes, sometimes unable to confidently date any earlier events, like, yeah, the Xia or the Xiang or the Five Emperors. Sima Qian found himself the information about earlier dates in his sources to be unreliable and often contradictory, so he chose not to put them into his work. But 841 is the year where he can effectively say, I know what happened year to year. So regardless of Sima Qian's historical workings, by the time the year hit 828 BC, King Li, who was still in exile, finally died. And his son, now King Xuan, was old enough to rule. So he was actually able to come back and was able to finally restore royal authority after the Gonghe sort of interregnum. He fought off the Western barbarians, which these barbarians are believed to have been the Xianyun, which were a sort of predecessor group to the Xiongnu, and another group across the Huai River to the southeast. Regardless, during his ninth year of ruling, he called the meeting of all the lords. And the reason for this is because, well, he needed to intervene in a military issue that regarded around succession struggles in a couple of his states, because the Lu, Wei, and Qi state were all suffering from dynastic issues of their own. Sima Qian stated that, quote, From this time on, the many lords mostly rebelled against all royal commands, end quote. So, well, this is not going well. 
So he was dealing with dynastic struggles here. But this is one of the more interesting stories of his reign, and this is recorded by Sima Qian, and yes, this probably did not happen. But in an interesting tidbit of history, it's all we have, and I think you guys will find it pretty interesting too. So King Shren, in working to establish some semblance of order and legitimacy to his own royal reign, he's said to have killed the innocent Du Bo, who was the Duke of Tang Du. But here's the thing. Du Bo's ghost was not happy with that, and he fired an arrow, yes, the ghost of the now-dead Du Bo, fired an arrow and killed King Shren. And yes, that is how his official death is listed. And his son, King Yo of Zhou, was the last king of the Western Zhou. As you probably could tell by now, there were some issues with Western barbarians. And even more concerning, there were issues with his dynastic legitimacy. But King Zhou then assumed power and became the 12th and final, yes, final ruler of the Western Zhou. In 780 BC, a major earthquake would hit Guangzhou, and of course... A soothsayer considered this to be an omen, foretelling the destruction of the Zhou dynasty. But that is where I'm going to leave it for this week. Because next week, we will have all the time in the world to dive into the weird and also weirdly personal history of King Yo, which involves his children and, of course, his concubine, and the end of the Western Zhou dynasty. So remember, by the way, before I let you go, to go and check out dormroomhistory.com. Still, some things need to be worked out on it, but I believe you guys will be equally as happy with it as I am. It's going to make it a lot easier for all of us to see the maps, the people, the technology, all of it. So with that, I will see you next week on the history of China. China.